0: We are in Matthew chapter 5 today, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, actually just a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. And um, if anybody did, not I've got a little handout, we'll put the extra handouts in that little folding chair back there. Um, Hopefully everybody's gotten one. If not, that's where you go to pick one up. Matthew chapter 5 starts this way. If you would just put them in the the extras, just just put them in that chair right there, just inside the door. That way folks can grab one when they come in. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So with that... Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this sermon is probably the most popular or most well-known sermon of all sermons that have ever been preached, um, and it's in a section uh, that Matthew kind of define, or that people kind of define, out of Matthew as being uh, the section known as the Gospel of the Kingdom. And so Jesus is preaching that. If you back up to chapter four in verse 23, uh, it says Jesus went throughout, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good. And healing every disease among and sickness that was among the people. So he was not only preaching, but he was also healing. And healing any and everything. Uh, this teaching that he's doing here, and this healing ministry that he's doing here, attracted a lot of people. In uh, verses 23, 24, and 25 of that previous chapter, he was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing. And people from all over were bringing... Uh, folks to him, large crowds from Galilee, from Decapolis—that's a, a ten-city region—from Jerusalem, Judea, and the region, uh, the Jordan, came to him, and they followed him. So when this particular sermon starts, it says that he went up on, and his disciples went with him. But then there's a crowd of people that go with him too. So he's teaching not only to his disciples, but he is also teaching to a crowd of people. Because of the way Matthew kind of lines this thing out, his disciples at this point are not defined as being the apostles. Because in Matthew's account, the apostles are not identified until chapter 10. So this is all the disciples at this point. It may include any or all of his later to be identified as apostles, but it's more than that at this particular point. So Jesus is defining here the ethical obligations of his followers, what his followers should be like, their traits, their inner um, being. God is over a kingdom. He is the king. Therefore, the subjects of his identified as his values or values like his values. And so Jesus is defining what these kingdom values are. God acts decisively, and then he puts the laws out there. Uh, Just like in the the lesson that we've got going, the series that Blake has going right now with the children of Israel. The children of Israel are given freedom first, and then they're given the law. God is going through the, the, uh, the steps of freeing them at this particular point, but it's not until Exodus chapter 20 that Moses goes up on the mountain and gets the law and comes back then and gives it to the people. Same way with us. Jesus came here to free us from sin. After he came, then he lays out the rules, kind of the laws, kind of the governing values that he wants to see of his people. And so we're seeing them here. um, God rescued the Israelites then he gave them the law. Jesus is rescuing us and now he instructions for righteous living. So it seems like a lot of things that happened in this ministry happened on the mountainside. If you remember last week when we talked about temptation, one of those temptations was on a very high mountain where Satan took him there and showed him everything that was out there, all the kingdoms of the world. Well, now he's on the mountainside preaching, and he does that quite a bit too. And it is Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives that he will go to when he prays. Before his crucifixion, it is a mountaintop that he goes to when he is transfigured. And it is a mountain that he goes to and meets his disciples when he ascends back to heaven, back to God. So mountain. Um, So, like I said, he's on the mountain, his disciples come to him, and I also think a huge crowd comes to him. The previous chapter, we identified who that crowd was. Uh, disciple. That is a follower or a student. Okay? So it's just a way of saying a follower or a student. Apostle is one who is sent and typically identified as one that's been with Jesus for quite some time and has witnessed miracles and has witnessed the resurrected Jesus. But uh, we know it's more than just his disciples because when this sermon is over in 7, when he had things, the crowds were amazed at Crowds following him. More than there was a large crowd, likely all of these folks that had been gathering from various parts around Galilee, around Judea, around the other side of the Jordan. They were all following Jesus, amazed at his teaching, he healing, and staying because of his teaching. But they were. And Jesus makes it clear. Disciple of his, you you need to take count. Uh, he will tell people on the other at another occasion that you need to count the cost before you come. And not only that, if you love father, mother, sister, brother, or anything else, even your own life more than you love me, then don't bother coming. It's not worth. So the crowd listened. They were astonished at his teaching, and we should be also. So. Here in um, in Matthew chapter five, he lays out what we call dispositions or attitudes or uh, be attitudes. Um, Jesus makes it clear that that and that defines who he is. As a matter of fact, he says that, that all things come, whether it's murder or envying or anything else, whether it's good or bad, all of those things come from the heart. The Proverbs writer in Proverbs 23.9 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Well, Jesus says that too. This word beatitude, it comes from uh, uh, that Jesus spoke, meaning blessed. The Latin for that is beatus, which is where we kind of get the word beatitude, taken from that Latin word. It is a powerful word meaning divine joy or perfect happiness. And typically it's not applied to people. But Jesus says, this applies to you and me. As followers of his, as his disciples, it applies to us. Divine joy, a perfect happiness, is wrapped up in these things. My question for beatitude is be-attitude. It is an attitude that we need to have. It's an attitude that we need to adopt. It's something that we need to put inside of us. Uh, One person said that this is a, a... code of ethics for his disciples. It is a standard of conduct for his believers. It contrasts kingdom values of what is eternal versus temporary values that are here are worldly values. It also contrasts the superficial faith that the Pharisees had with the genuine faith that he expects out of his disciples. As a matter of fact, he'll say later in this very chapter, in verse 20, I think it is, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're wasting your time. So <clears throat> let's attack them then. Poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing that ought to strike you might be, not could be, is so those who are poor they already have the kingdom. It is. Something we look forward to? Yes, it is. But we already possess it. Uh, The disposition deals with not being puffed up with pride, but pitiful. You know, there's a song we sing, um, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. At the tail end of one of those verses, I think it's the first verse, tail end of that first verse, before it goes into the cross, it used to say, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I." And and everybody kinda got to worrying about this worm feeling that that was permeating everybody, you know, we're not worms. We're not pitiful. And so they changed it. And now when you sing it, it says, would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? Which sounds a whole lot better. Um, But, do not have the power to get ourselves into heaven. Therefore, we are poor in spirit. We don't have enough spirit to get ourselves into heaven. But Jesus does. When we recognize our position relative to his position, the kingdom of heaven is truly ours. We already have it. We're living in God's kingdom now. The blessings of it. Uh, Paul would say in Ephesians 3, all spiritual blessings, getting into Christ is necessary for spiritual blessings. We need to live it as we're in it. In verse 4 he says, Blessed are those who mourn and be comforted. Such so of the king need to mourn their own uh, when we're talking about how are in this United States. We mourn over it because it hurts us that things have or seemingly have deteriorated as bad as they have. And maybe it's just the fact that we have communications that are better and we hear about it sooner and we hear about it more that it sounds like things are so bad, but things are bad in this world. And that's because Satan is running loose in this world and a lot of people are following him. So when we realize our spiritual inadequacy, we mourn. And the good news is, we'll be comforted. As a matter of fact, we talked about a couple weeks ago in Luke. He, by Jesus, consolation of Israel is the one who brings that comfort. And so we have his spirit. As a matter of fact, we're comforted by his spirit right now. And we are comforted by God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit in heaven forever. This world. You know, a wild stallion is perfectly useless to anybody until they break that wild spirit. But once that horse is tamed, once that horse is meek, that horse then is useful. All that power is still there. All that strength is still there. But now it's useful. It, meek is probably better defined as power under control. Meek does not equal weak. As a matter of fact, Moses was identified as being meek in Numbers chapter 3. And yet when you think about Moses, buddy, that that guy was a firebrand. He would explode in rages of temper. And nobody stood up to him, including Pharaoh. Um, And Jesus is also defined as being meek in, in chapter 11, verse 29. Neither of these guys would be defined as weak and they certainly weren't. They were strong of character and they were strong of spirit. Not only that, meekness is the product of the Holy Spirit working in his children. In Galatians chapter 5 uh, about the fruit of the Spirit, one is meekness. So we grow in meekness due to the the earth thirteen the inheritance this earth but rather a new heaven and much more right now. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. You know it's the appetites that we have that really what we do. If somebody is is really for power then he is going to the avenues that will grant him power. Somebody for money, he will seek the avenues that will gain him money. Rather in this position of longing for God, then we will seek the avenues that help us to pursue God. Um, Psalm 42, 1 and 2, panting for water, so my soul longs for you know we sing that song too. When our heart our inner being is searching for God just like a deer hunting for water, then we will find God. An inward desire that only God can fill. About that for, but we've talked about it here in this class too, it is innate in people to search for God. But it is, unless somebody kind of helps us out and points us in the right direction. And then, when we start finding God, we start realizing God, we start leaning on God, we realize that's what I was looking for all along. We hunger and we thirst for God. We realize that. God's will. There was one occasion in uh, John chapter four where Jesus. is woman at the well, and he sends his disciples on into town to get food. And in the meantime, Jesus is conversing with this woman, and he's telling her, as she would say, everything I ever did, impressing on her that he is Messiah. When his disciples come back, they got the food, and uh, he says, well, I'm not hungry. And so they start asking anybody, does somebody feed him? How is it you're not hungry? And he said that his his food was to do the will of his father. By doing the will of his father, he had suppressed any need for food. Maybe that's the way it is with us. So, the person who lives as a citizen in God's kingdom lives an obedient life. John fourteen fifteen, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Blessed are the merciful, Mercy. Keeping the commandments our inner disposition and the spiritual value of the kingdom, is the basis of our relationship inside the kingdom between each other, but also with our relationship to God. Uh, it's a biblical principle that God is merciful to those who show mercy. And not only that, uh, James would say that he, judgment will be poured out without mercy to those who refuse to show mercy. Um, and Jesus would tell uh, various individuals, I guess probably the Pharisees primarily, in Matthew chapter 9, 19 or 9 through 13, where they were, they were all bent out of shape that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And you and I know that there's nobody else he could eat with other than sinners. But they were getting all bent out of shape because they had identified the people that were eating with Jesus as tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus would point out that. You guys are are missing the point. There's more things important here than this, because he says, "I I demand mercy more than sacrifice. God prefers mercy more than sacrifice." He's actually quoting Hosea 6:6. So there's some priority here. Being merciful to one another was more important than offering a sacrifice than worshiping God. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus would say that. He not only said it there, but he will say it again in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Because on that occasion, his disciples are going through the wheat field, and they're grabbing grains of wheat, and they're kind of rubbing their hands together, you know, to get the husk off the wheat so they can And the Pharisees come along, and they say, oh, well, these guys are working. It's a Sabbath day, and they're working. <laughs> and Jesus uses exactly the same thing. I demand mercy more than sacrifice. He also points out that Jesus ate the bread that was in the temple, which he had no right to eat. But what? Well, he and his, deci- or he and his followers were going to die of hunger. What was more important? Their eating that bread or that it was there for the priest? Jesus said it was more important that he would eat that bread. He demands mercy and, of course, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 25, when, when Jesus is kind of laying out the, the final judgment, he says, I was sick. I was in prison. Uh, you know, he kind of lays out all kinds of things here. And he says, you didn't do this to me. You didn't come help me. You didn't come visit me. You didn't give me food. You didn't give me drink. You didn't give me clothing. And everybody's like, what? What are you talking about? When did we ever see you in those kind of conditions? And he says, what? as you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren. What is that? That's mercy. Showing mercy on somebody who needs this, that's what's important. Similarly, in, in Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, where he's talking about the Good Samaritan. Through this, this whole story of the Good Samaritan, that the only person that helped the, the individual in a ditch was a Samaritan which was a slap at the individuals that he was telling the story to. But he gets done with the story, and he says, Now, who was the neighbor to this individual that was destitute and in the ditch? And the guy says, Well, I, I suppose the one who showed mercy on him. <laughs> Jesus goes, Ding, ding, ding. You're right. You're right. The one who showed mercy. Christian extends sympathy. The compassion that God has, caring for others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure heart means that our attention is undivided. We are solely, totally, and absolutely dedicated to following God. We're not wishy-washy. You know, James would say in in James chapter 1 that if you need need wisdom, you should ask of God. But when you come to, to God to ask, you must do so in faith, not doubting. Because if you doubt, you're a double-minded man, and you should not expect to receive anything. God wants us to be solely, totally, and absolutely dedicated to him, pure in heart. One one belief. Not two. Not a double-minded person where you're, you're thinking kind of halfway I believe God, halfway I don't believe God. No, it's not that. You're, you're coming in faith, believing, not doubting. Because if you doubt, you don't expect to receive um, Jesus would go to extremes to uh, uh, point out things that, that individuals had problems with. Like in Luke chapter uh, 11, 37 through 44, the, the Pharisees again were getting all bent out of shape because things weren't being done the way they wanted it to be done. And Jesus says, You know, you guys, you go through the nth degree to tithe the, every spice in your cabinet mint, deal, cumin, you, you will tithe it all. And yet, what? You overlook the greater things of the law, justice, mercy, and love. Jesus, there's a priority here. There's a priority here. He expects his disciples to be genuinely concerned and to have inward purity. Um, the blessing of eternal intimacy with God or truly seeing God. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, for those of you are in small groups, we talked about seeing God in that uh, psalm that we were reading. We're going to talk about it again this week, about seeing God. Yeah, you truly see God when you take on the qualities that are godly qualities. And this is yet another one, being pure in heart. let's In uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, the proverb writer says there that there are six things that God hates. No, there's seven. And he lists off these seven things. And the last one is one who sows discord among the brethren. That is something God hates. That is something God hates. God loves the peacemaker. If we want to sow discord among the disciples, just know ahead of time, God hates that. That's not something God likes. I mean, there, there, as a matter of fact, there's a world of difference between like and hate. At least in my small mind, God hates those who would sow discord among the brethren. Rather, he wants those who promote peace. Uh, here again, peace is the product of the spirit. If you go back to Galatians chapter 5 again, peace uh, peacemaker is one of them. Uh, and not only that, uh, they, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter is it's what unites the followers of Christ. It unites us. God regards those who make peace. We are especially children when we make peace. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessings come to those who suffer for doing good. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20. A person who pursues godliness will not be exempt from persecution. Just as Blake pointed out this morning, it's going to come. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, uh, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I think the real thing here is your your, um, persecution is coming because you are following Jesus. That's what's blessed. If your persecution is coming or your trouble is coming because you're doing wrong, that's not blessed. And it's not a good thing. Followers of Christ will explicitly and unashamedly associate themselves with Jesus, with his mission, and with his values. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. There it is again. Great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets. If you look at prophets, you will see the same kind of thing. They had a rough life because they followed God. So don't, don't get disheartened if you're having a rough life because you're following God. It's actually a good thing to follow God. And Jesus has already said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You know, Vance Davis was a preacher that um, preached for a little while for us in uh, South Carolina. And, uh, matter of fact, some of y'all may have known him because he came through here teaching a Fishers of Men um, class, uh, I think at the old congregation back when that existed. But anyway, he tells a story about a man that's traveling uh, via cruise, from a foreign country to the United States. And it took everything that he had to buy passage on that cruise line. And he gets on that cruise liner and he's sailing for the US. But you know, after a a couple of days, the cruise director kind of thinks, well, I'm missing that guy. I've seen almost everybody around, I haven't seen him. And so he locates his cabin and he goes in there and the, the, the guy is subsisting on crackers and bread and water that he had brought on board with him, thinking that he didn't have money to do anything else. And the cruise director says, no, 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 no. You paid passage. You need to come up on the ship. He says, we've got food laid out everywhere, almost all the time. Oh, there's, there's recreation. There's, there's rest. Uh, there's glorious sights. You can see everything that's around here. You have paid for it. It's already paid for. You need to enjoy what you paid for. You need to enjoy the trip to this new land that you're heading for. And you know what? That's true for us too. Jesus has already paid the price for our ticket to heaven. And we need to come out of our cabin and we need to enjoy the trip that Jesus has planned for us from here to eternity. It's already paid for. Jesus paid the price. Blessed are those who are willing to submit themselves to God, trusting him to transform their lives. Jesus said we are blessed when we are willing to serve God in his kingdom. Jesus declared the kingdom of God through his preaching. He placed great emphasis on the inner qualities that we need to build in ourselves, the one we just, ones we just talked about. God promises to reward those disciples who develop these characteristics if they place their complete faith in him and rely on him for their salvation, all the while allowing him to renew your heart and renew your mind so that you are more and more like God each and every day. Remember, Jesus has paid the price. Let's enjoy the trip. Doesn't mean there won't be rough seas. Don't mean there won't be hard times, because there will be. But you know what? You can't get thrown out of the ship. The Holy Spirit has you lassoed in. God has you lassoed in. Jesus has you lassoed in. You can only get off his ship if you choose to bail out. That's the only way out. Trust him. Follow him. Next week, we are going to talk about... The Centurion's Servant and Jesus, found in Luke chapter 7. Thank you very much for your attention this morning. We're going to beat the bell, barely.